When I was a medical student, I wasn't sure if my faith had a place in the way I would practice medicine. I needed to see this done well, to have it modeled for me in order to overcome my hesitation and fears. Through their example and friendship, the members of the Catholic Medical Association have inspired me and showed me that yes, this can be done. Come and see how Novus Medicus, the young members of the Catholic Medical Association, can provide you with a sense of belonging and challenge you to use your gifts as a faithful Catholic in the medical community. Visit our website, novusmedicus.org, to connect with us today and start your journey to live out your faith to the fullest in the calling of medicine. Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Chris Stroud. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant and health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. This amazing show is brought to you <laughs> in part due to the generous underwriting of our friends at CMF Curo. You can learn a lot more at mycatholichealthcare.org. You can live your Catholic faith in your health care with CMF Curo. Today's show will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. The three of us will be answering questions from pre-medical and nursing students. Yes, and Tom, you were kind enough to supply the questions. Where'd you come up with these? Actually, I am merely the mediator. Yeah, I think that's the word, something like that. So what happened is in early January of this year, I was privileged to participate in Seek 23, an event of the Fellowship of Catholic University students where they had 19,000 mostly college students at the convention center in St. Louis. Uh, being excited about being Catholic, uh, a number of apostolates were there. Uh, of course, Curtis Martin and his crew organized a fantastic uh, venue and events. And as part of it, the Catholic Medical Association was there to meet pre-medical students and nursing students. So we, Tom, yes? I, I just want to interrupt you. So please, FOCUS, let's make sure listeners know what FOCUS is. Fellowship of Catholic University Students present, I think, on over 200 That's college what I was thinking. campuses now. Yeah. And then SEEK is a part of FOCUS. It's an annual event that they hold over four nights. It was January 2nd to 6th this year. Uh, and they have, you know, we had mass in the old Edward D. Jones Dome. I forget what they call the <laughs> dome now. So it was incredible. Uh, so roughly how many people are we talking 19,000 people. Wow. That's impressive. Yeah. Just that alone is an impressive thing to think about. Oh, yes. Um, All young people, mostly young people. I was there, but young people excited yeah. about being Catholic. But suffice it to say, listeners, if you have kids leaving high school, headed to college, they need to get connected with Focus wherever they end up. They do incredibly good work. Yeah, that's neat. And uh, at our booth, we met uh, and collected contact information over 700 different pre-medical and nursing students who want to know how can I be Catholic and how can I be um, a good doctor or a good nurse. And that's, fact, what, that's what we're going to unwrap with a lot of questions about that. Well, yes. And so two of the things that we did while we were there is we actually got to do a live podcast while there. Uh, in fact, our good Kyle Hyman, who's producing this episode, was there uh, helping run that. And uh, we had like 200 yelling, screaming students at times. And we had uh, students there who are answering the question, can you be a good Catholic and a good doctor or nurse in 2023 America? Well, it's tough because I've, everything you hear on the news for healthcare, a lot of it's negative. Mm. You don't hear a lot of the joys right. of healthcare. So I could see myself, especially if you don't have family in the profession or something, how could you even break into that? It's so there's so many negative and and really yes. bad forces. Mm. Where did you find the the kids optimistic when they interacted with you? Oh, most of the kids were. A lot of them who didn't know that the Catholic Medical Association existed were happy to find a group of like-minded people. Mm. It was like a lifeline. And then you meet other people. We met people there who said, you know, I used to be headed down to medical care. I decided not because I didn't think I could do it as a Catholic. Uh, mm. So we also had a breakout session, a, a lunch session, where we had about almost 500 students present. And we had a panel. Uh, in fact, our own Emily Crash was on the panel. She's taking over our involvement at SEEK next year for the CMA. Thanks be to Emily. And uh, they texted in to me a number of questions for the panel part. And that's where these questions that we're going through. So we're answering real questions from real college students that have questions about being doctors and nurses in yeah. 2020. So listeners, you might be interested in a health career or you may be listening and you have a child or a grandchild or a niece or a nephew that might be interested in health. So 
you know, save this episode and make them listen to it because it's, it's really relevant questions from real people about real concerns. So before getting into the nitty gritty of the questions, we have our medical trivia question of the day. Now, it's hard to get into medical school. When I applied to Mayo Medical School, there were about 4,000 applicants for 40 slots. And that was the smallest school in the country, 1% acceptance rate. But I found out that all three of our schools today, University of Florida, Michigan State, Mayo Clinic, now have around a 2% acceptance rate. Think, what? 2%? That's all? Well, the average medical student doesn't apply to just one school, though. So go from there. So, two-part question. Number one, according to the Association of American Medical Colleges, what percentage of the 55,000 applicants to MD schools were accepted and entered medical school last fall. So what percentage of those 55,000 applicants actually got in fall of 22? The second part, what's the average number of medical schools that a pre-medical student applies to? Ooh, good question. Yeah, it's going to be fun, but you don't get the answer till the end of the show. So we'll be back with questions from real students to real doctors after this break on Dr. Doctor. And we're back now with the meat of this show, which is going to be questions from pre-medical and nursing students. So a common theme among their questions was, what do I include in my medical school application when I write the essay and when I'm in the interviews? So one of them had been a focus missionary, but others have been involved in different Catholic works. So, so Chris and Andrew, what would you recommend to these students that they include in their medical school application and when answering their questions, especially about motivation to go into medicine? I mean, you know, I would say in an, in an overreaching way, the most important thing is to be yourself, whether in written form or whether in personal form. And you can polish yourself. I mean, some days we look better than other days, right? But uh, you want to be yourself. You want to be authentic. I don't think you can pull off something that isn't actually you, not very well. But there are different ways to be yourself and to be authentic, right? Um, but that's, I think, an important overreaching principle. Another one that I would suggest is that, you know, the whole purpose of the written essay and the interview is to somehow allow them to to think of you in some way that stands out. I mean, put yourself in the interviewer's position or the application reviewer's position. Thousands and thousands, as you mentioned with the trivia question of applications. What makes this one any different than the last 10 that I just looked through? And certainly, here's an opportunity to stand out based on some of the things that you've done. Uh, what do you think about that, Andrew? Yeah, I, I think being memorable is important. I mean, the biggest thing I would focus on and the number one thing they're looking for is competence, mm -hmm. secular competence. And so the faith, obviously, for, for us is such an important part of our life. You got to square up to the fact, too, that some of the people who are doing the interviews might be hostile to that, yeah. right? And so there's there's ways to package that. One, um, m maybe if you think they're going to be hostile to it, especially, unfortunately, at some of our Catholic medical schools, they're particularly hostile to, yes. to Orthodox yes. Catholics. Uh, maybe you don't highlight that, or maybe you highlight it from a way that is more acceptable in our secular culture with some of the social justice type stuff rather than the pro-life type, type right. stuff. And you're not lying. Um, and, you know, when you, I hear you say that, I think about jargon. Yeah. It's really easy for us to sort of, you know, slip into jargon with things like focus and seek and terms mm -hmm. that those of us in the club know, but an interviewer <coughs> may not know. You know, yeah. so if you did missionary work, you did missionary work because you care about people and you like helping others and you like doing that in a way uh, that makes a difference. That's not Catholic. That's just good. That's good good stuff. And that's something that everybody respects. Mm -hmm. I think if, depending on the school you go to, if you highlight all the time you did with sidewalk counseling for pro-life work, that that could fall on deaf ears. And I've definitely seen some, some Catholic folks get rejected from Catholic mm -hmm. medical school with above average everything because they were kind of too Catholic. So I, I think you want to package it in a way that you're not going to look like somebody that would be hostile to their worldview. But Focus on the things that brings everybody together, care of the poor, marginalized, everybody likes that. Right, because you can use virtue language, or virtue, the reality of virtues, because if someone's not attracted to virtue, you probably don't want to be at that medical school. <laughs> so I think that's a good way. I mean, use terms that are real about, okay, I'm trying to build this virtue in my life. You don't say that, but this is an example of what I believe in. Um, 
And then there's, you know, Oscar Wilde. You know, what did he say? He said, be yourself. Everyone else is already taken anyway, <laughs> right? And so when we were at SEEK, we did mock medical school admissions interviews. And one of the pieces ah. of advice I give that reminds me of what you said is pretend you have a little yellow sticky note and you're trying to put it on that interviewer's head. What is on your sticky note? Yeah. Think about that. Like Chris said, you want to have something that will help you stand out. Now, let's be clear to listeners. We are in no way suggesting that you should soft-pedal your, your Catholicity uh, or your, your faith. Not, not at all. But, you know, it's a lot easier to change the tent on the inside of the tent than it is on the outside <laughs> of the tent. So, the, 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 you know, the yes. goal here is to get into medical school. Yeah. Uh, and then once you're in medical school and you end the profession, as it were, we can talk about all of the things that need to be changed and how Catholic medical schools need to be Catholic and the like. But you don't get to have that conversation if you don't get accepted. And and at least the position I, I hold, I don't know about you guys, the hard, hardest part about being a doctor is getting in. Hmm. And so, like, if you can overcome that barrier, then you're in a position where all of a sudden it's actually it's very hard for medical schools to kick people out. Hmm. looks bad for them. It really doesn't happen. It's just getting in is the hard part. So you want to look your best and look funnier than you are, look smarter than you are. <laughs> That's We try and do that every day, right. but especially when you're applying to medical school. Yeah, good, good point. So what you got for us, Andrew? Well, you know, going through these questions, we got a lot of good ones. One of them I think everybody's wanting to hear about is OB specific. So this one's at Chris. Chris, <laughs> secular OB education. How did you navigate it? How should people navigate it? Now, this is this is for a student already in medical school, presumably, right? No, and this is for ones wanting to go that are mm. afraid that, oh, I, there's no path for me here. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's a critical question, and it's unavoidable. Um, and when I'm talking to students, both pre-medical and medical, I, I try to always point out there's a difference between the philosophy and the content. So uh, I mm. need to understand how artificial contraception works. I need to understand IUDs. I need to understand in vitro fertilization. I need to understand pregnancy termination and abortion. Um, so I need to learn that stuff as distasteful as I may find a lot of it. And this was a part of their questions where there was a separation. What should they learn didactically? What should they yeah. learn procedurally? And thank you for separating yeah, that. Yeah, there's a bright line there. What I'm willing to participate in can be and should be different than what I'm willing to learn. As a student of medicine, I'm willing to learn anything and everything, including things that don't fit with our Western view, maybe, of, of medicine. Because I'm a student, I'm, I'm a sponge thirsty for knowledge. Ah, but let me give you an example where I drew a bright line where I was unwilling to learn something didactic. And that was we had a four-day course in sexual medicine. And so that we would better accept uh, and tolerate those with different ways of looking at the world, they showed two days of horrendous virtually pornographic movies. Mm -hmm. I was the only student out of 40 that refused to watch those because I didn't want those in my memory banks for the rest of my life. Right. The 60s yeah. were pretty crazy, right, Tom? Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, you bring up a, a good point because obviously we're culpable for what we do. Right. And knowledge, and I don't know about you guys, but I felt like after people got wind that I wasn't going to do some things, they were peppering me with those types of questions yes. all the more. So I, I feel like, especially if there's something like um, uh, abortion, obviously, but even contraception, you probably got to know it better than the people who are prescribing it you because do. they're going to try and try and make you look stupid. I mean, the people who are hostile. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that even happened to me recently. I was testifying in the state of Indiana ah. a, about an abortion law, and they tried to say, I don't do abortions, therefore I have no knowledge, and I can't testify on that. Yeah, Ooh. you're not an expert because yeah. you don't do them. Which is exactly <laughs> not, not true, but it's a good lesson to learn here. So you need to learn the content, even the content that you find reprehensible, yeah. uh, especially, to your point, Andrew, that content. How do you get along with your peers who totally disagree? They think you're nuts. Yeah, that's a good question. Now, when I was in medical school, unfortunately, uh, I, I wasn't on the right side of this issue. But now, as a doc, I am, thanks be to God. And, you know, I, I'm probably like you. It only comes up occasionally. Hmm. You know, once in a while, I'll get an eye roll. I'll get a snort or a snicker or something in the physician's lounge. But for the most part, I'm so out there and it's so on my sleeve that those who disagree just avoid me. 
uh, <laughs> uh, except for those types who want to engage you sometimes just for the fun of it, which I think, you know, bring it. That's okay. <laughs> you know, we're ready. But, you know, I think to the interview question, especially when you're in the learner mode, yeah, you need to be really cognizant that maybe I'm a little different. So if, if, uh, if I'm an OBGYN resident and I refuse to work at the abortion clinic, okay, maybe I need to work extra at the other clinic. Maybe I need to take extra call for my peer that's covering for me. And that's part of the cross that I bear for not participating. That's okay, and that's going to endear, endear me to my peers, but I'm not going to compromise you know, my morals to do that. But at the same time, I'm not being lazy. I'm not trying to get out of work. Yeah. Um, but, you know, those peer-to-peer interactions can be challenging. But that's also some of our greatest opportunities to evangelize. You know, if a peer wants to come up to me or to you and ask me a sincere question about something, I'll cancel everything and talk to them because that's a listening ear mm-hmm. that we may never get. So take it and, and run with it. And as St. Paul says, be prepared to defend what you know. So, Chris, when students get on a rotation, at what point should they let their preceptors know that, uh, hey, there, there are certain things I cannot do? And how do they do yeah, that? A rot- I think that's a good question about the beginning of a rotation. Or if you finish medical school and you're interviewing for a residency, uh, and any specialty, but especially family medicine, obstetrics. But let's go to the, the medical student rotation, yeah. third year, first time on service. So I, I would say, personally, the goal would be not to surprise anybody. So I would have those conversations with the dean of students, someone like that, before your rotations even began. So yeah. the dean, not just who's in charge of the rotation, but the dean of the med school, then right. they can... I would start off high. I mean, imagine what maybe an mm-hmm. observant Jewish student would do uh, or uh, a Muslim student would do. And it's going to be expected that there are certain things they, they will not do. I remember I went to medical school um, with an observant Jew who was a father of triplets in medical school. Well, <laughs> medical school posed some real challenges for him on the weekends, <laughs> yes. right? yeah. uh, especially the stairs, you know, were a real problem since he couldn't use the elevator on Friday evenings. But he worked it all out. He told everybody well in advance, here's what I have to do. Here's what I can't do. You know, please help me. But I would say overall the goal would be not to surprise anyone. And in, in medical school, there is a built-in protection as well that you actually can't prescribe anything, right? Right. And you can't primary on any surgeries. That's right. So I, I always found in medical school the biggest risks were assisting on surgeries. Yeah. But you can, especially if you know, okay, these are the areas where I'm really worried about, you can focus your efforts there to make sure that you, you can follow your conscience. Right. Well before maybe a, a tubal ligation procedure as a medical student, you should have said to your upper resident, just as a reminder, you know, I don't I don't participate in these. I really want to observe. I just really don't want to have my hands there. But I really want to learn. I really want to understand. But I'm, I'm not allowed to participate other than observing. And again, don't don't surprise them. The other thing that y- you remind me when you said that is in reminding them and in telling them and in talking to the dean of the students, that is a time to be at your most humble. Right. Yeah. There's there can be no tone of arrogance there. No. You know, you wouldn't want to say to the dean, unlike you pagans, <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm not going to participate in these unholy endeavors, but I'll pray for you while you do. Yeah. It's okay to yeah, think that, that. Uh, but don't say that. So you want to be very humble. I can't do these things. I- I'm sorry for any inconvenience. I want to help. I want to learn. But, you know, there's a bright line I can't cross. But be very, very humble when you're having these conversations. That's good. So what question would you like to pepper us with, Chris? So, you know, I guess this is an obvious extension, but how do medical students handle secularized teaching such as abortion uh, and how do you protect your morals? Just sort of an extension. Abortion is obviously the most egregious one. Um, And that's a tough one. Do you need to go watch an abortion? To your point about, you know, the film. Mm I can study abortion. I can know everything about it. I can have memorized the literature on complications and indications and techniques. But do I need to go watch an abortion? You know, the same might be true if if I needed to go. Do I need to go watch an execution to understand what's happening? I would argue no. Right. Um, But I think observing something that's that egregious, maybe that's a time. Uh, to say, I, I can't cross that line. And that will come up in medical school today. 
probably more than when when the three of us were mm-hmm. in medical school because it's become such a I don't know such a a goal you might say yeah. of medical school it's a it's a sacrament of secular medicine <laughs> in anti, a strange sort of anti sacrament anti sacrament that's exactly it yeah so you know uh, a, a <clears throat> nurse that I work with regularly told me that her daughter chose um, I'll just say it George Washington no, excuse me um, no George what gosh that's crazy uh, Jesuit school Washington D C Georgetown not George Washington to go there because she was Catholic. And because they had a mandatory Planned Parenthood rotation uh, for every medical student. And that's why she chose it. And I'm thinking, A, I wouldn't choose the school for that reason. And I certainly wouldn't participate in it if I were there. But she should have chosen differently. But that's an example of how it's really become almost a sacrament uh, of not just secular, but in this case, you know, Catholic medical schools. Tom, here's a question for you. Some somebody was asking about married life and healthcare, uh-huh. and uh, you've been married. I don't know if you've been married the longest. It's going to be between you guys. But yes, how been, how do you navigate things? Uh, I do whatever my wife tells me. Of oh. course. <laughs> I mean, next question. Yeah, move on. Still uh, married. That's good. No, no thirty-two <laughs> years. I mean, I wasn't married in medical school like you. I remember in my class of forty, ten were married at the time. Mm. I was dating. I got married in internship. Uh, so, you know, as a man, men are different than women. Yes, Dr. Doctor believes that. Uh, it was, I think, you know, easier for the men who were married. And I'm trying to think if all 10 in my class who were married were men. I don't think any of the women were married. And we were about 50-50. Even you know, as I, as, as I think back, though, tell me if this is true. The married students that I knew did so much better. They had, <laughs> they were so darn balanced. <laughs> right. they, they didn't take things more seriously than they needed to, and they didn't brush things off either. It's like they knew the proper importance. So even though Andrew's the one who asked it, Andrew, you were actually married in medical school. Yeah. I mean, of, of course, you were you know, on the strong shoulders of uh, Veronica, but nevertheless, That's right. That's right. <laughs> w- what was it like for you and how did you see your life compared to the, your cohort that wasn't married? You know, it's interesting. I mean, for me, at least, I obviously, you love medicine for a lot of reasons, helping people, learning really cool stuff. It's a good job. Um, I kind of looked at school as a job, you know, and just like you're trying to provide for your family, uh, when when you have to go and do whatever you're doing for the day, sometimes it's really cool, sometimes it's lame, um, but you're just providing even early in marriage, and uh, hopefully it's an investment for the future. So it, Veronica knew what she was getting into, and uh, and she in in retrospect everything's great, but yeah, there's there's some tough times just hours wise. So you got to make sure that obviously if you're going to be married, everybody's on board with some of the longer hours, especially during training. So if you you were speaking to the non-medical spouse, what should they know that they probably don't know about being married to a medical student? Well, the the one thing that (laughs) Veronica and I, it it took years to come to this, but the thing that we realized is like, sometimes I'm gonna be held up for whatever reason. you know, especially in training surgically type uh, rotations or even hanging over to chart, finish charting. So everything got a lot less stressful after I didn't have as many hard deadlines at home. Mm. Like, hey, dinner's right at this. Hey, we're going to do this Saturday morning. Like, I really want to. I'm going to try my darndest. But there's times when when that doesn't work. So I think if you can conquer that mental leap before getting married, mm. just say like it's not going to be leave it to Beaver. No, yeah. it's yeah. not. We I I had a really good neighbor at my old house, and he was a banker, and he got home every day between 4:29 and 4:32, <laughs> and yeah. every day drive yeah. by great guy, great family, and Veronica's like, why can't you do that? You know, and I'm like, yeah, you're right. I mean, there's some real sacrifices there on, on the home life of the spouse that's not in health care. Yeah. But there's there's also some really cool advantages, too. I mean, everybody hopefully can find good meaning in their job. But I think in healthcare we have a unique opportunity to find purpose and meaning in our job, even, even when we're stressed out, even when it's a bad day for whatever reason. You get to really help people. Mm-hmm. And uh, when, when I realize that and uh, those interactions, that's when it – it all makes it worthwhile. And I just have to communicate that to Veronica and uh, help her see also that, you know, this is a team sport. And uh, <laughs> all all the efforts that, that she's doing that, that I don't get to help out with as much as I'd like to, um, you know, that's also contributing to caring for the patients. What a great reminder, though. I mean, if I could give anybody marital advice, 
whether they're thinking medicine or not, but especially if they're thinking healthcare, it would be choose wisely. You know, <laughs> choose wisely because, you know, to your point, it takes a strong spouse. You're not a banker. You're not going to be home at 429. And you knew that in advance. I think about I met my wife when I was in residency in OBGYN, and I was on a pretty cushy rotation uh. for the 12 weeks right after we met. Uh-oh. Oh. <laughs> and I got home every day about 3 o'clock, 3.30. Sounds like and a bait and switch, Chris. Yeah, we got, to know each other. <laughs> we got to know each other really well. She got to be great friends with my dog. I mean, you know, it was terrific. And then I did a really tough rotation for six weeks where I was never home. And I think after a couple of weeks, you know, she left me a note or something that said, sorry, things didn't work out. You know, good luck in life. Oh, my. You know, she sort of thought I had moved away. Um, <laughs> and, and in reality, I was, just, I was just gone a lot. So it was a real lesson for us in the very infancy of our relationship. We are not Ozzie and Harriet. We're not going to live that sort of <clears throat> movie Hollywood kind of banker lifestyle. No offense to our banker listeners, but it's not a predictable lifestyle. So, yeah, manage expectations. And in Mm. fact, I think something that would be a good idea is if you're dating and thinking about being married to somebody in medical school, get to know a married couple where one of the spouses is a physician. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Because they can tell you the stories and open your eyes. And and in fairness, we as physicians, we're we're talking about medical school. But, you know, being a nurse, they tend to work strange shifts. Mm. They tend to work you know, two nights a week and then they're off the rest of the week. And sometimes they sleep in the daytime. Sometimes they sleep at night, which is bizarre. And that's not a stereotypical relationship. Talk about these things frequently and early. Amen. And on that note, we're going to take a break halfway through this show. We'll be right back after the break. Hello, and we are back on Dr. Doctor, your favorite Catholic medical radio show. (laughs) Uh, Doing an in-studio one today, which are always my favorite. Okay, here's another question from folks. And I guess this one, maybe we start with Chris, but it's really for both you guys. My favorite rotation in medical school was surgery. I loved it. But I was not excited about getting called out at all hours of the night. (laughs) And knowing Miss Veronica, as we talked about, uh, I I wasn't sure that was going to be her favorite choice either. Can you be a surgeon and have a family? Yeah, great question. I mean, you know, I'm a surgeon and I have a family, so by default, yes, I, I guess. You know, I think. Would you do it again? <laughs> <laughs> Would they do it again? Yeah, that's, I, I think that's it's right. Probably possible to um, change maybe your career choice within medicine, you know, your specialty choice, I guess we should say, based on your concerns with lifestyle, right? Um, but for me, and maybe people like me, and Tom, you're the temperament expert, but. At some point, you're being you're you're being dishonest with yourself. So, could I do that specialty because it has a great lifestyle? Probably, but would I be happy? And, right. and would my family life end up being worse because I was faking it at a job mm-hmm. I didn't like? Um, or could I throw myself at my career and destroy my lifestyle? Probably, that's my temperament. Um, or could I find a happy medium there? I w- I would suggest maybe that's where people like the three of us and maybe like a lot of listeners, we start asking the question, what am I What am I really called to do? I know I'm called to marriage, right? We've discerned that, we figured that out. But then what am I called to do in medicine? Well, I'm not really called to do anything in medicine. Well, then maybe you should rethink your career, your career choice because a calling is just that and it's gonna be difficult. It's gonna have hard times and it doesn't matter what specialty you choose. But you know, to the specific question, yes, you can have a great family and be a busy physician. Uh, it takes work. You know, you need to marry well, um, like we did. <laughs> and thank you, if, wives, if you're listening. Um, but yes, that can be done. But it takes it takes focus. It takes intentionality. And I don't really think it has to do with the specialty. Um, you know, I think you could you could have a cushy specialty and have a horrible family life. Uh, and vice versa. I don't know. Maybe that's too vague, but what do you think? No, I agree with that. You can mold your life after residency because you don't have a whole lot of control during Uh, residency. 
uh, you can mold it to be what you want it to be. Now, it's harder to do it if you're a neuro neurosurgeon, yeah. but I do full-time surgery, but I do surgery all in the office. I think I have one of the, the greatest possible medical lives because I get to operate on people's faces. I get to cure cancer every day. Mm -hmm. I get to sew them back together to make it look good. <laughs> and I still get to leave usually by 4 or 4.30 each day, but I, I operate straight through for about eight hours. But still, that's that's a great life. So I found an area because I was at one point asked, oh, would you like to join general surgery? During my internship, they just loved me and they wanted me to be a general surgeon. I saw their lifestyle and it's like, no, that's that's not for me. There's no yeah. joy there. But I found a place and anybody who's called to medicine can find a place within medicine that fits your joys, that fits your um, your lifestyle, that fits mm -hmm. your family life. So yes, it can be done because there's not one size fits all. I guess maybe a follow-up because, I mean, as folks are coming through, and, and maybe it's all of us too because I'm probably in this group too, we're caring more and more about our lifestyle than mm. maybe doctors did 20 years ago, Yeah. right? Especially Absolutely. students. Um, they are. Would you change your specialty because of a perceived lifestyle or would you make the specialty you prefer fit the lifestyle? Yeah, that's a great question. I was thinking the same thing, you know, because it just as an OBGYN, the way the practice opportunities look today compared to 25 years ago for me, it's radically different. You know, so now it's very common to work something less than what most of us would think is full time. There are people that only work in the hospital. You know, in your specialty of family medicine, I, I think probably most family physicians don't walk into a hospital anymore. That's right. They, they practice only in the office. That wasn't true 20 years ago. Mm -mm. Uh, radiologists work remotely from Hawaii, you know. <laughs> uh, and so to your point, I think people are finding a way to make their professional interest fit with a lifestyle they like. And it's much more creative now than it was a few decades oh, ago. Oh, job sharing is common. Yeah. In fact, there'll be multiple, there'll be, there might be three family physicians, often who are women, sharing th two full time slots. Yeah. Uh, one of my partners, when she, she was Catholic and she had young kids, her husband was an engineer. She worked Tuesday evening, Thursday evening, and Saturday mornings for years yeah. until her, you know, her schedule could, you know, do other times. So, I would say, Andrew, the second part of your question is the right answer is find what you love to do. Then you can figure out a way that it fits into your life. Because if you just do it for lifestyle, but you hate it, that that's a lose-lose for yeah. you and your Somebody's going to suffer there. One, one of the parties is going to suffer. But, you know, I'll bring up sort of the, the dirty secret that, that nobody wants to mention, and that's money. And so mm -hmm. I think about my peers, which will probably come after me for this, but you, you know, you see some of our colleagues and they say, oh, I'm just so busy. I wish I could slow down. What they're actually saying is, uh, I wish I could slow down and make the same amount of money. Yes. Because they could slow down, but slowing down would mean an income you know, sacrifice. So again, it's the opportunity to say, this is what's important to me and I'm gonna make my career fit that. That could mean that I'm going to make less money. Um, and nobody wants to talk about that, but don't don't you think that's true? Well, and, it, and it's really a priority situation. It is because I mean, definitely in healthcare, but I think really almost everybody in America never have as much money as you want. Almost always more than you really need, <laughs> if right. you look at it. So, <laughs> is your priority trying to amass whatever? Um, very few people are going to be Bill Gates. Um, or is your priority making sure you got a couple nights a week when you can go watch a kid soccer or something mm. like that? Right. It's it's learning how to define the word enough. Yeah. I, I remember um, a, a man who gave me some business counseling when I uh, moved here. He wasn't a Catholic, but he was a devout Christian. And he said that a, uh, a necessity is a luxury once owned. So hmm. once you have something that you once thought was a luxury, once you have it, it then becomes a necessity <laughs> to you. Can't live without it. Right. So I, I've reflected on that quite often. That That is actually a good point. Yeah. Well, I think there's a problem with the kind of people that tend to go into medicine, very high achieving, hardworking people. And for almost 20 years of our lives, all of our affirmation comes from an external source, a grade, a yeah. test score, a ranking in yes. school. Yes. Uh, I got that residency that everybody wanted. Now, once the learning environment changes, once you're through in the learner mode, now you've got to seek affirmation somewhere else. Sadly, often that becomes financial. Mm -hmm. I need that bank account to tell me that I have value. 
Uh, and that's, yeah. that's a challenge, and it's a recipe for unhappiness. So early on, figuring out what's actually important to you in your life, uh, are you trying to get to Harvard or heaven, as Peter yes. Kraft likes to say? Yes. Yeah, right. If you could figure that out early on, I think you're on the road to happiness that many of our colleagues never quite find. Yeah, that's a good point. And, it, you know, that actually brings up another idea about folks who are going through training Kind of to pivot a little bit, we had a question about gap years. Yes. I know, Tom, you had mentioned you took a gap year. Yes, Tell- although the, there wasn't the concept back then. Um, mine was kind of unusual, a gap year. Um, back then I finished my, I was in my third year of med school, and all these signs were pointing to maybe I should take a year off to consider whether or not I'm called to the priesthood. So I got the permission of the U.S. Army, who was paying my way to med school, and of Mayo Medical School, to take a year off. I went to... Uh, I was in the Diocese of Winona, which is where Bishop Barron is now a bishop, mm. and uh, went to the seminary there for a semester. And uh, by the end of the semester, I was tossed out for emotional instability, which is, <laughs> they were absolutely right to do that. <laughs> but I, I had that semester, learned some stuff I never learned, and then I worked in a lab for six months before resuming medical school. So I know the experience of what it's like to be off of training when you know you got this big downhill curve in, in your memory of all this physiology and pharmacology yeah. and stuff. So a lot of students now seem to be doing gap years intentionally. Mm. A, uh, a year off, and it's typically a year between college and medical school. And, and they want to know, will it help? Will it hurt? Uh, I, I th- you know, I don't think it's necessary, but I, I think some students perceive that it will make them more um, noteworthy on their application process. If they've Mm. done something for that year, you know, working in a lab or doing some kind of foreign mission trip or or whatever. Uh, But my impression is it's not necessary, but it's become very common. And and maybe it's to your point about people wanting a better lifestyle. Maybe they feel burnt out after all this academic work Mm. and they just want time off. I don't think there's any harm in doing it. I think the best time to do it is probably between um, pre-med and medical, and medical school, school yeah. because yeah coming back to my fourth year of medical school having not done any medical stuff that was a real mm. uphill climb uh, mentally that was a challenge you can do it you just have to study and bring yourself back in and I know other students now who have done it but it's not easy mm. and I think to, to your point about a gap here before medical school it's at least my impression that a lot of the medical schools now are looking for non-traditional um, pathway students. Mm-hmm. Yes. So it's almost it's almost a negative if you're high school, college, med school, da 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 da. I mean, like, oh, we have a thousand of those. Yeah. Um, they like. It gets I think back to that interview question and the, and the yeah, sticky. which makes you different. How how do you stand out? How do you look differently? You know, something that I find myself talking to medical students or especially pre medical students about is, you know, in in college you killed yourself to get into medical school, and whether you take a gap year off or not. When you're in medical school, that provides a real opportunity to decide what's the next chapter going to look like. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's the old expression, what do you call the guy that graduates at the bottom of his medical school? Doctor. Exactly. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, and so, you know, once in medical school, you can relax a bit. You could take a gap year. You could, you know, start to carve out what your life is going to be like. It's, an, it's a perfect time. Uh, to think about those things. But that's a tough transition from super competitive work, 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 work to maybe now I can just focus on the beauty of learning. I'm not so sure most of us are very good at that. Yeah. Although more medical schools are going to pass fail, and I understand that even the, um, what was it, part one of the boards is becoming pass fail now. Yeah, holy smokes. That would have been nice. (laughs) Where was that? Everybody's just worried to death for that first board exam. I don't know about you guys, but at least my whole school, everybody was just going bonkers over it. Well, I recently learned, listening to these great courses in history, that there was no school anywhere in the world that assigned grades till I think it was University of Paris in like the late 18th century started doing it. Before (laughs) that, the concept of grading things in class ranks wasn't even a thing. Oh, that's wild. Yeah, and so it speaks to kind of that meritocracy mindset, yes. Yes. you know, keeping up with the Joneses. And, you know, the other thing that's bizarre about medical school education is um, it's so contrary to what medical practice is like. And when I say that, I mean, ah, uh, yes. Yeah, yes. you know, in medical school, you are your own entity. You are an island entire of yourself. You know, business students call it collaboration. 
medical students call it cheating. <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, to collaborate is to be weak. And yet when you practice medicine, I can't practice without people like you, Andrew, and other specialties. Yeah. You know, I need help. I need colleagues. I need to collaborate. I need to ask questions. Uh, and I need to help them, and they need to help me. You don't learn that in medical school. They might even give lip service to that, but it isn't very authentic. And it, it's just another example of how it's trying to make you something that you're not. Don't don't let them do that to you. Yeah, medical school is a, a very interesting ride, and uh, I think it's really cool in a lot of ways. <laughs> but it does it does have the potential to really change you, and the thing sometimes for the worse. I but think. I think you know your point speaks to the, really the topic of this whole episode, and that is how can I be what I am and survive medical school? Yeah. And what yes. I'd love to tell students is don't don't let them change you. They're going to beat you up a little, uh, yeah. and and that's okay. You know, they beat St. Paul up a lot. Uh, they cut his head off, right? So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but only once. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't Same. have to go quite that far. Uh, but they're going to beat you up. You're going to get some anti-Catholic, a religious fanatic stuff, and that's okay. It is four short years. Just put your head down and get through it, but don't let them make you question who you are. And, you know, a, a practical piece of advice that I always like to give students is at the end of the day, you want to be a good teammate and a good student. And I know for me, one of my mantras was just trying to be excellent Mm. and, you know, helping out your coworkers, even if they kind of low-key hate you. Uh, (laughs) If they owe you because you covered call for them, they really can't, they can't do that much because they owe you a favor. That was one of my big things in med school and residency is I want all my coworkers to owe me a favor. I want to be the guy giving <laughs> favors. And then when it comes time to throw the first stone, you, it's hard to find people. Uh, you know. Good well point. done. Hey, th- there's a question that was asked where my heart was wrenched by this uh, nursing student. Or actually, she might have been um, a young nurse. And so I want to pose this to you. How would you answer this question? Because I think there's a lot of people who feel alone out there. And this person said, I'm in the nursing community, but no one where I work really believes in God. For mm-hmm. some reason, the only faith I'm holding on to is because of me going to church. Should I move out, of, out or pray through it all? Mm-hmm. They sometimes even question why I believe, and for some reason, I'm having a tough time answering. Wow, that's hard. That is gut-wrenching. Yes. It, it seems to me like there's sort of two radical ways to approach that. One would be sort of what we might call a geographic cure, get out you know, get to a friendlier environment. And, and I think that would be perfectly correct for some people. Um, but one could also say that, that this woman is in the perfect place, right? So she's been sent there for a purpose. She's not there by accident. And she's walking among the wolves, you know, get ready and take the fight to them. It's the perfect chance to evangelize. Just by showing up every day, she's evangelizing. Forget Ash Wednesday when she's really evangelizing, (laughs) you know, with a mark on her forehead. Um, But I think both options are correct. And it would really depend on that person and how they see their role. But I wouldn't overlook the opportunity to take that as God put me here for a reason, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it. Well, and, you know, the, the other thing that that question kind of points to is we need a community. Mm. You know, we talked yes. about the CMA. Yes. Uh, no, no man's an island. Yeah. And, and I think if you feel, and I'm sure all of us have at times, I'm the only one out there, uh, you ask yourself, is this even worth it? I mean, I, I'm, I would rather be doing something else. Yeah. That's not the truth, though. The truth is you're not really alone. And so it it would behoove you to find a peer companion and a mentor at least. Yes. And then if you have those, you can look in the mirror every day and say, I'm not the crazy one, no matter what anybody else says. Yeah, whether it's the the Catholic Medical Association, the the Christian Dental Medical Association, there's a lot of great ways to get those peers and to get that support. So you can go take the fight you know, to the enemy, but the devil loves to isolate us. Yeah. You know, that's a powerful tool to make us feel alone. And as you say, you're not. That's right. Oh, next question. What do we have? Oh, Andrew, yes. Uh, So a lot of students have, you know, fears that they might lose their job because of their faith. Ah. So on one of the questions, I know that your name is next to it. Yeah. How do you maintain a career in the medical field where you might potentially lose your position by upholding your faith? That's a great question. It's always a risk, but it's really also not that big of a deal. 
Um, <laughs> it sounds like I get that question a lot from other people, you know, students especially. It's really not that big of a deal. If if you have kind of a regular nine to five and lose your job, you get another job. Unemployment's like 3% right now. You're going to get another job. <laughs> when you're in the medical field, if you're a nurse, unemployment is zero. <laughs> they make more than doctors in Indiana, I think. Um, if you're a doctor, your unemployment is also zero. Um, you can go anywhere and get a job. So if you lose a job, uh, first of all, it's not going to happen because that hospital makes so much money off you. Uh, second of all, you'll be able to get one someplace else. Third of all, if that really happened, you, what an incredible witness. But you're never going to lose a job. And at the end of the day, you can go into practice for yourself, which is you know, one of the things I really enjoy because then I can spout off anytime I want. Nobody can fire me. <laughs> yeah. um, much, so I, much better to lose your job than your soul. Oh, amen. Yeah. And people are well always said. scared to death about losing their job. You're not going to lose your job. You really aren't. Yeah, that's our, no disrespect to our parents, that's our parents in our ear saying, you know, behave or you'll lose your job. But to your point, there's another one waiting. And what better reason to lose your job than for your faith? Well, that's something where the three of us are quite unusual here. All of us own our own practices. Mm. And yeah. that's well, we're unusual for a lot of reasons, but that's, <laughs> yes, that's yes, just one of them. Yes, yeah. our, our wives can list the other reasons. But that one, you know, and that's something to consider. I've noticed that young doctors coming out of training they just want a guaranteed salary. Mm. They want to work, you know, nine to five or whatever it is and just yeah. go home. And that's not necessarily to your advantage because no. there is a value in freedom and being able to dictate how your practices run. It's interesting. I just met somebody this week who was that way when coming out of training several years ago, has been in a hospital system and has seen the error of his ways. <laughs> yeah. Well, they come at you your first year of training with a six-figure check. Yes. And they say, if you sign now, you can have this, and you're broke, and you really could use right, it. Right, exactly. And uh, But it's all the delayed gratification. Look, you're 30. You've already been doing this. You yes. know, you've been to school for a million years. Uh, hang on. Have a little confidence in yourself. And um, and if, if you find yourself in a place where you're unhappy, you can always make a change. Mm. I would ask your mentors, people in uh, private practice, people in an employed arrangement, uh, are you happy? I mean, this is you know? basic economics. Everything comes at a price. Yeah. There are no free lunches, right? We didn't think of that phrase, but it, it's true in medicine and outside of medicine. And so that perceived security comes at a price. It does indeed. You know, we wrapping up this part of the, the show here. Uh, Chris, give us a uh, quick and dirty. How would a medical student uh, respond to a resident who says, um, here, I want you to hand this prescription for birth control to this patient? What should mm. they do? Yeah, you know, sort of deciding uh, how culpable can you be. I mean, you asked me to hand a piece of paper to somebody, I hand a piece of paper to them. I, I, I don't think most ethicists would say you've, you've committed a sin by doing that. I'm just... I'm just completing a simple, you know, task. Now, fill out this prescription and I'll sign it and you hand it to them. Now, that, that would trouble me a little bit more. But instead of the specifics there, I think maybe taking a more global approach. Mm -hmm. And that is, as we talked about a little earlier, to what degree can I participate into certain activities? Let's figure that out early on and not surprise anyone. So that resident in this situation mm -hmm. should have already known this student doesn't participate in anything related to contraception. Fine. Um, you know, many, many uh, episodes ago, remember we had the physician assistant from the Northwest? Yes. Uh, from who was Oregon. working at a Catholic institution. Yes. And they wanted her to refill prescriptions for gender yes. affirming care, as it's called. And she declined. Uh, she lost her job. She sued right. and she won. But she drew that line there and said, no, she did tell them in advance and they pushed her anyway. But it, it shouldn't be a surprise. You know, the student should have said to this resident in advance, please don't ask me to participate in contraception. I'll do anything you need me to do, but I really don't want to participate. Oh, well, how do you define participation? Well, filling out the things, discussing the side effects with the patient, all of these things you need to think through as a conscientious student well in advance. What am I willing and not willing to do? Well, and it speaks to the humility as well. You, you brought up humility. Exactly. Um, you know what? Remember, I'm the weird one. I don't do contraception, yeah. but you look like you could use a cup of coffee. How about I get you a <laughs> cup of coffee and somebody else can do that for you. You are so good. And on that note, we're going to end this regular part and come back for our top three takeaways and the medical trivia question here on Dr. Doctor. 
Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, and welcome to the answer to this episode's trivia question about some of the alarming, uh, shocking statistics of acceptance into medical school. Well, on average, only 2% of applicants got into our three schools. 41% of all applicants got accepted to a school for MD. So about 4 out of 10 got in in 2022. Now, the other question, what's the average number of schools that students applied to? How many did you apply to? I applied to three. You? I want to say like six. And I did five. We are significantly below average, which was 18. (laughs) Wow. Wow. 18. When I hear you say that, I think every one of those applications had a fee when I was applying. Yeah. uh, And that wasn't an option. (laughs) Yeah, 100%. And so many of the med school, you know, like 90% of the students are in state. So Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'll apply to the Michigan ones. But the applicants now can do Zoom interviews. But to your point, Tom, almost 50%, almost half of students will get into a school. Yes. Uh, Now, what we don't know is applying to more schools, does that improve their chance or just decrease their bank account? Yeah. Don't know. But what are our top three takeaways from this Q&A roundtable? Chris? Yeah. Mine is, you know, despite all of the brilliance that we've uttered here, uh, (laughs) you know, I, I would encourage listeners, you know, to think of this as a calling. God doesn't make mistakes and he doesn't play jokes. If you're called to go into medicine, to go into nursing, to go into dentistry, you're called. And all of this other stuff will just work out. Yeah, I would say, like JP2 says, be not afraid. Mm. Look, it's scary at times. That's real. It's okay to feel that way. But truly be not afraid and don't act on the fear. It's going to be okay. You're, you're really not going to lose your job. You're really not going to fail out. You just have to do it. Try your best. Say your prayers. It'll be okay. And on the interview front, you know, be yourself. When you are dating and determining if you're going to be married to somebody, if you put up a false front and they find out you're somebody else, how is that going to bode for your future? So you want to match with somebody who wants you the way that you are. Now, don't be, you know, in their face, make them uncomfortable with how Catholic you are. Just be a, a good human being. And if they like you for who you are, great. And if they don't, it's like, you know what? God must want me to go somewhere else. And that's okay. Sometimes the answer is no, this isn't the best for me. You don't have to be accepted and loved by everybody. That's true. So listeners, thank you so much for being (laughs) on this threefer, as we call it here on Dr. Doctor, where you can find this and all of our old episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. Click on episode archive if you're struggling from insomnia. You can can watch over 300 episodes of Dr. Doctor. That'll fix it. We we have a video version now. This is an in-studio one with all three of us. Go to drdoctor.org and look for our video stuff at the YouTube link at the top. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And this is Dr. Chris Strip. And Dr. Andrew Mullally. And we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to our text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Doctor Show. And tune in for new episodes every Friday. Plus, find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.